Welcome to the Keeping It Israel podcast with Jeff Futers, where Jeff and his guests talk everything Israel as it relates to Christian faith and the church. If you are a Christian and you stand with Israel, you will be encouraged and challenged by this podcast. And if you're not so sure about the whole Israel thing, you need to learn how your faith connects with Israel and why standing with Israel matters. Now here's Jeff with today's guest. Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Keeping It Israel podcast. My name is Jeff. I'm your host. And my guest today is Rabbi Ken Spiro. Uh, Ken is a yeshiva teacher. He's a religious Jew, teaches at Eish HaTorah in the city of Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem. And uh, Ken has an incredible mind. He's an amazing historian. He's also a licensed tour guide. He'll tell you a number of those things about him. Uh, we're going to talk today about Israel and the journey toward peace in the Middle East. And Ken will comment some of his thoughts about how we got here and also what this most recent peace deal, the Abraham Accord, will mean for Israel. And I know you're going to find this interesting. Let's join Ken and myself as we chat together uh, about peace in the Middle East. Welcome to the podcast, and it's great to have you with us today. My guest today is Rabbi Ken Spiro from Aish HaTorah. And uh, Ken, you are uh, doing this part-time. You also have a number of other gigs. Tell us a little bit more about uh, about all that you're doing, first of all, before we jump into our topic today. Thanks for having me on the show, by the way. Um, I've become an expert at Zoom in the last yes. seven months. We all Basically, have. I speak in various formats. I uh, expat America, American living in Israel going on 39 years now. I'm living in the old city of Jerusalem. Um, you can see in the, the image, I'm going to get the right way. Where there, that image there is, I got the backwards. I'm not standing outside the Jaffa Gate. It's a picture I took during the first lockdown. Now we're in lockdown number two. Um, I teach part-time in a yeshiva, an institution for Jewish education in the old city called Eshatorah. It's my part-time job. I'm also a licensed tour guide, speaker, author, historian. So I mix and match the same skills in different formats and locations. Yeah. And Ken, if, uh, if people want to find out more about what you do, I know you have a website. What's, what's your website for our listeners? Yes, yeah, so my website is uh, Ken Spiro, K-E-N-S-P, as in Peter, I-R-O, uh, and KenSpiro.com. It's, uh, all my content is on there for free. Listen, lots of video content. Listen, read, and watch on you know, history, Jewish history, religion, politics, morality, lots of good stuff up there. Fantastic. Well, we'll make sure that we uh, print that also below so that uh, people who are watching can get it off the screen. We'll put it in all of the uh, transcripts and, and so on. Ken, uh, it's great to, it has been great, I should say, to get to know you over the last few years. Our, uh, our mutual friend, uh, Chris Atkins from One Media, who I know that uh, you've been connecting with for a number of years now. And uh, um, he introduced us. We have been able to get together a number of times. And, and I love the perspective that you bring, especially on, you know, the, the impact of a lot of what has been happening in the world as it relates to Israel and to the sort of Arab-Palestinian conflict. And I use the word conflict to start, but what I, what I want us to sort of lean towards is, uh, is the peace side of that equation. And um, for the last uh, 70 plus years, there's been this issue going on uh, in Israel. And I want you just to help our listeners uh, perhaps understand a little better 
this journey towards peace, I'll call it, because I know, I know it's all about perspective. And uh, I think from the Israeli side, I'm fairly confident from the Israeli side, that they would want this to be a journey towards peace. We're not sure that everyone always feels that way, though. So just talk a little bit about the last 70 years and kind of what's been going on. Okay, it's, I mean, it's, it's a, a huge question, but I'll try and uh, simplify it. Peace process for dummies, not that you guys listening are dummies, but um, <laughs> yeah, it really is because there's a lot of confusion about it because you, the, the media tends to put a spin on it. This mm-hmm. cycle of violence, I hate that. You know, that and I, it, I might sound like I'm taking a side in this, you know, um, I'm a religious Jew uh, living in Israel, but I, I think I, I like to believe that I'm being 100% factual when I say all the following things, although it certainly will point a finger in a certain direction as to who's responsible for the lack of peace. The real issue, Jeff, has always been the, you know, the Palestinian thing is a smokescreen. I could do a whole class on the legitimacy or illegitimacy of the Palestinian claim, given there never was a Palestinian people in the ancient world. There were Philistines, but no Palestinians. They're not related. Um, mm-hmm. But I always like to tell people, I say, it's never been about uh, creating a Palestinian state. That's a smokescreen. The issue has been, even before Israel was born as a state in 1948, the inability of the Arab world collectively to accept the existence of a Jewish state of any size with any borders. And as to why that is so, I have multiple presentations on. Much of it has to do with the Islamic worldview about territory that was controlled by Muslims. And even though we Jewish people were in the land of Israel 1,900 years, Joshua leads the Jews into Israel, 1,900 years before Omar ibn al-Khattab, the square at Jaffa Gate in back of me over there is named after him, mm. brought Muslims in conquering you know, the Middle East to Jerusalem. That was 1,900 years later. Um, so so uh, the train of thought just pulled out without me on it. I have to apologize. No but worries. The, the, there is an, the Arab world did control the Middle East for 1,300 years. Different Islamic dynasties. Oh, you know, Omayyads and Abbasids, Ayyubids, Mamluks, Seljuks, Ottomans. So it was Islamic territory, but they're not the indigenous people. You know, part of the Islamic worldview is uh, uh, the idea that what is Islamic can never go back to being non-Islamic. And that non-Muslim monotheists that are called Dhimmi, which are you and I, by the way, Christians and, and Jews, are never allowed to rule over, even if it's benignly, over Muslims. So the, the creation of state of Israel is in both those aspects, impossible to accept theologically from Muslims. It's territory that was under Islamic control. It's now under control of Dhimmi, who, albeit in a democracy, 20% of the Israeli population are Arabs, most of them Muslims. But still, that's kind of theologically unacceptable. It's politically unacceptable. But if you study the history, even before Israel declared itself a state, the Arab world has been rejecting the notion of a Jewish state of any size. Nothing to do with borders or occupation of supposed Palestinian territory. They called for Israel's destruction before Israel was even born in 1948. And every time that Israel's tried to offer to live at peace in compromising, it's been rejected. Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister, when he reads the Declaration of Independence, calls for peace with all our Arab neighbors. And to our, you know, the Arab world immediately declares war on Israel. The Egyptian Air Force bombs Tel Aviv two hours later, and five Arab armies declare war and invade. Mm-hmm. And even before 1967, Six-Day War, when Israel got a hold of those territories, which everyone likes to call 
the West Bank. You know, Jerusalem was a divided city. Uh, Jordan sat in the entire, you know, eastern side of the city and the old city. And they were still trying to destroy us. What led to the 67 war, which led to Israel's supposed occupation, which I think is an incorrect term, was yet a second attempt in 67 of the Arab world to destroy the Jewish state. Immediately after that war, Levi Eshkol, the prime minister, again says, we'll give the territory back, just make peace with us. The Arab world rejects it again. Finally, 1979, it's interesting, Jeff, that um, uh, Zeb Jabotinsky, the founder of the revisionist Zionist movement, He's like the grandfather of the political right in Israel, the Likud party. Um, he had a great, he had a, a saying, it was called the Iron Wall, but he said the Arabs will only make peace with us when they realize they can't destroy us. So after the 73 war, the Yom Kippur war, which although Israel really won, it was viewed as a victory by the Egyptians. At least they were for a brief period of time able to grab some territory from Israel, even though they lost it all again. Egypt in, in 79 makes peace. And what does Israel do? Israel is the only country that, instead of doing peace for peace, which is the normal deal, it's land for peace. Israel gives what's called the Sinai, which is bigger than the state of Israel, to Egypt for what turned out to be a very cold peace treaty. But nonetheless, it was a game changer. Mm -hmm. That happened again in 1994 with Yitzhak Rabin and King Hussein of Jordan. Not so much territory was changed. But what we see over and over again is that every time an Arab state has been willing to break with the, we're not accepting a Jewish state of any size, Israel has not only willingly made peace, but sacrificed territory, deep strategic territory. In 1993 with the Oslo Accords, they right. pulled out of large chunks of Judean Samaria, giving it to the Palestinian Authority, which then launched a number of like, terrorist wars against Israel, the Intifadas. In 2000 and 2007, we had both Ehud Barak and Ehud Omert offered Arafat to withdraw to the pre-67 basically ceasefire lines that preceded the Six-Day War and, and to redivide Jerusalem. And Arafat said no. So, so, you know, the only thing stopping the creation of a Palestinian entity, state, whatever you want, is the Palestinian recognizing. Even Arafat said, the day I make peace with Israel is the last day I'm alive because, he's, you know, the factions within his own people would kill him. Mm -hmm. So it's always been about that until we've seen now a bit of a game changer in the recent peace treaties, but I've already been talking for too long. So I'll let you <laughs> go back and comment and ask me some more questions. Yeah. So before, before we move on to, to this most recent game changer, which uh, I'm very, very intrigued to hear your, uh, your take on, talk to us a little bit about that idea that uh, the Palestinian state is just a, a smokescreen. Talk to us about uh, who were the people, who were the people before 1947 who were in the land, what were they called, and and how do we get from uh, from Arab residents of of Judea or Palestine to Palestinians? Sure, that's a great question, and one people do not understand. The whole term Palestine comes from. The Philistines. The Philistines right. are a seafaring people. We're never sure, we're not exactly sure of their origins, but most historians, archaeologists believe they migrated from the area that is today Greece, 
many, many thousands of years ago, you know, Middle Bronze period, which is the time of Abraham and earlier even, you know, 3,000 plus years ago, mm-hmm. they're not the indigenous population. Only Canaanites who don't exist anymore, which is a generic term used for seven different people, the Hittites and the Prizites and the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem before it was a Jewish city. They're the only people who could claim if they still existed to be more authentic and indigenous to the land. So these, these Philistines migrated for various reasons across the Mediterranean and settled in not just Israel, but the Sinai and what is today Lebanon and Syria. And um, you could see in the Bible, King David is always fighting with them. A lot of people in the book of Judges, everyone, everyone's always fighting with these guys. They ceased to exist two and a half thousand years ago. Uh, when the Assyrians, who were the great world power coming out of what is today the area of Iraq, more or less ended them like they ended the Northern Kingdom of Israel, just move them somewhere else and they're gone. The name, however, was preserved by Greek and Roman, Greek Roman writers, like Roman historians. If you fast forward to the second century of the Common Era, which corresponds to from 132 to 135, was the third major revolt of the Jews against the Romans and the biggest revolt in the history of the Roman Empire, which was called the Bar Kokhba Revolt. When the Romans, after with great difficulty, crushed that revolt, they decided, we've had it with you Jews. Like you're such, you're such troublemakers. So what do they do? They go after Judaism. You know, they're basically trying to destroy Judaism. But they decide we're going to, one of the best ways to end you as a people is to end your connection to your country. So those of you who survived physically, because so many Jews had died, we're going to, first of all, change the whole name of the country. We used to call it, the Romans said, the Roman province of Judea after the Jews. Now we're going to name it after these extinct people called, we're going to call it Philistia. And we're going to rename all the cities in the country non-Jewish names. We're going to rename the city of Shechem, where uh, Joseph is buried. We're going to rename it Naples, much nicer Italian name. Now, by the way, Arabs don't have a P sound. Like, they don't say pita bread, they say bita bread. So they call it Nablus. Um, We're going to rename Jerusalem, which, by the way, we're going to rebuild as a pagan Roman city plowing the Temple Mount under, building a temple to Jupiter on it. Uh, We're going to ban Jews from entering it, you know, cut Jews off from their spiritual political capital. Hopefully they'll disappear on us. We're going to rename it Aelia Capitolina after the Roman Emperor Hadrian. So that's where the term Philistia really gets associated with the land of Israel. That term, you know, there's no country. We lose our second commonwealth and different empires will come in. You have Romans and you have Byzantines. Then you have all these Islamic nations, Omayyads, Abbasids, Ayyubids, Mamluks, Seljuks, Ottomans. Then the British come. The term Philistia, well, the Europeans will pick up on it and, and call this area the Levant, this, the greater area around us, the Levant, but also call it uh, uh, Palestine. Not in association with a group of people, just sort of preserving that Roman name geographically. What's interesting is the only people who call themselves, fast forward to Jews returning with the founding of Zionism in the early 19th, basically late 19th, early 20th centuries, the only people who called themselves Palestinians were the Jewish uh, people resettling in the land. Mm. You know, the Jerusalem Post, which is the newspaper's original name is the Palestine Post. El Al's original name, Israel's airline, was Palestine Airways. The Arabs called themselves Arabs. Um, So in in 1948, when Israel becomes a state, the Arabs continue to call themselves Arabs. They might call the, they they might refer to, they're not going to refer to the land as Israel. So they would still call it Palestine, because that's Mm -hmm. what everyone referred to it as. Um, And the Jews changed themselves, the Jews changed their name to uh, Israelis. Only in the mid-1960s, 
Ahmed Sukari, and later with Yasser Arafat, with Al-Fatah, it's a whole complicated, I don't want to get into too many details. By the way, they create the Palestine Liberation Organization, which, interesting, for most people don't know this, that was created basically by the Soviet Union through the Romanian Secret Service, and it was basically used because in the mid-1960s, then, then sort of the Cold War in the Middle East is going to break out mm-hmm. with the Soviets backing the Arab countries and America basically taking strong side with Israel. Um, and it will be used, that whole Palestinian issue will be used sort of, sort of to delegitimize the Jewish claim to the land of Israel. Using a people who never existed as a people before to try and like sort of deny the original inhabitants a connection to their land. The whole refugee issue we know is a byproduct of, first of all, the 1948 war. Yep. You know, because you read these history books, they say 1948, war broke out between the Arab states and Israel. War didn't break out. War doesn't, <laughs> it's World War I, you could say broke out. It's very complicated, but Israel calls for peace. The Arabs call for war, declare war and invade. Had they not invaded, there'd be no refugee issue. Many of the Arabs who left fled the fighting to get out of the way of the fighting. Many of the Arab states told the Arabs, like, move out of the way so we can, you're not, you're not in the line of fire, so we can kill the Jews, dump what's left into the sea, and then you can move back in again. Israel definitely cleared out some villages, especially on the Jerusalem-Tel Aviv highway, where they were attacking, trying to cut Israel off. They did. They closed the road. They were trying to starve Jerusalem into submission. So there was definitely Arab communities that were cleared out. Those refugees... Uh, went to different surrounding Arab states where they were never reabsorbed. By the way, at the same time, between 40 and 67, a greater number of Sephardic Jews, Jews from the Middle East, living in Iraq and Lebanon and Syria. These, by the way, these Jews had been living in places like Iraq for two and a half thousand years, way before Islam ever came into existence. Mm-hmm. The entire Middle East was made Judenrein, which is the German term for Jew-free. It was ethnically cleansed of three-quarters of, of a million Jews who lost, many of them lost their lives, but most of them lost their property, public communal property businesses. The vast majority were absorbed by the Jewish state and are now a good chunk of the Sephardic Jewish population. Many went to places like France and you know Montreal. They spoke French if they were from Morocco or something. Meanwhile, those Arabs sort of festered in these camps. Palestinians are the only refugees in the world who maintain refugee status three, four, five, six generations later. Another wave of, 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 of uh, re- Palestinian refugees was caused in 67 when the Arab world again tried to destroy Israel. Right. And this time it was only, it was, it was, you know, this was only three Arab armies. But this time, you know, Jerusalem, you know, the Jor- Jordanians were pushed back. Syria's pushed out of the Golan Heights. Israel took, so that only further increased. But these people have been kept in this festering situation, denied citizenship. Um, and used as like a whip to delegitimize the Jewish people, where they could have been absorbed into the countries the way Israel absorbed all those refugees who were thrown out of their countries. Mm-hmm. And they, main- they, they remain in a unique refugee status, which is unique to them alone in the world. So talk, talk to me a little bit more about that. You, you indicated that, that this situation is being used in order to delegitimize Israel. Is it... Uh, is it fact that, uh, you know, that the Arab states around uh, have actually, you know, stated this or are, are we just assuming that this is what's happening? Yeah, the fact that they don't recognize the Jewish state's right to exist is de facto a recognition if you have no right to be there. Of course. You can't tell a people, you know, you have a right to be there, we're going to kill you. Their whole claim to be attacking Israel, because everyone, 
even evil people in history, I know, always like to justify their agendas with some higher cause. Mm-hmm. You know, even Hitler conquering Europe, people were just conquering it to whatever, make the world a better place for a higher German civilization and get more land for our people. You know, we're not just slaughtering people for no reason. So de facto, yes, that's exactly what they're claiming. And backing them have been a lot of international organizations, many political ideologies, much of the mm-hmm. left has bought into this narrative in many countries. Many, many of the revolutionary movements in the world, this sort of interesting connection between the ANC in South Africa and the Palestine Liberation Organization and the Irish Republican Army and all of these revolutionary movements in South and Central America. It's sort of like, it's sort of like a package deal of revolutionary movements to, to right wrongs, regardless of how wrong the rights are, right the wrongs are. Mm. So this narrative has actually taken hold to a tremendous extent. To make peace with Israel involves on a certain level, even if you're not officially going to state it, a notion that you guys are here to stay. Whether I think you have a right to be here to stay is a different story, but at least I'm going to recognize that you are here and you are reality. The, uh, this, the irony of this whole thing is the notion that the Jewish people have been written out of their history. This is so bad that even UNESCO you know, most of the holy sites in Israel, almost every village in town, even the Arab ones, are built on pre-existing Jewish sites, with the exception of Ramla. Pretty much every Arab city or town, whether it's in Judea, Samaria, or in Israel proper, is built on a pre-existing biblical Jewish location. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, even, you know, international bodies like UNESCO have written Jews out of their own history. They recognize, you know, the Cave of the Patriarchs in Hebron is recognized as an Islamic holy site. The Temple Mount is not called the Temple Mount anymore. Mm-hmm. It's recognized that it's the holiest site in the world for the Jews, but there's no connection. You know, it's not recognized. The Palestinian, you know, we talk about the Palestinians being refugees. They're bounced from place to place. They try and overthrow Jordan in 1970. The Jordanians chuck them out. They go to Lebanon. They destabilize Lebanon with this very delicate balance of Christians, Muslims, Shiites, Sunnis. Civil war breaks out there. They use it as a launching base to attack Israel from the north. Israel goes into Lebanon in 1982. You know, all, finally, 1993, under Yitzhak Rabin, they invite these people back in the land of Israel, giving them guns. They settle, but it was contingent. The Oslo Accords were contingent on each side recognizing its historical and religious connection to Jerusalem, the land of Israel, even though the Jewish connection is much deeper, longer, whatever. But each side will recognize Israel by letting the Palestinians and the Palestinian Authority back in and giving them guns and everything else clearly did that. The Palestinian Authority fell very short on keeping their side of the deal. And until today, I can show you, there's not one map, textbook, political leader, Palestinian archaeologist or historian that will admit that there ever was a Jewish presence in Israel before Zionism, that there ever was a temple in Jerusalem. So the intransigence of the Palestinians, and they've actually raised several generations of their own people who are so brainwashed with this this rhetoric that they actually truly really believe that the Jews are the foreign white colonialist occupier, which by the way is the narrative that much of the left has picked up around Europe and stuff, that Israel is a vestige of white colonialism. Jews are all white people, they're from Europe. It's all lies. And and we now have a people who are completely unwilling to negotiate. No matter how many times we offer them everything they want, they keep saying no. And so before we're going to get right to the Abraham Accord after this question, I promise, but talk to me about the irony of uh, the League of Nations who originally helped to make the case for a Jewish state 
in the in the land of of Israel or, or Palestine at the time. How how does the League of Nations become uh, the United Nations, who now today um, are are very very far away from uh, any sort of support, in my estimation, uh, of the state of Israel? How do we get there? So that's also a very interesting process. You know, the British, who were the major world power in this, you know, before you're talking about World War One up to World War Two. You know, there was a lot of sympathy, even though there was a lot of pro-Arab sentiment amongst the British government. Things there was a lot of sympathy for the British to support the creation of a Jewish state. There was a certain level of that around the world. Um, but when the UN is created, which is post-World War II, and I always say when, I, when I'm guiding in Yad Vashem, which is the National Holocaust Memorial Site in Israel, I get to the end you know, of the narrative and Israel's reborn in the ashes of the Holocaust. And I say, if there's any silver lining to the Holocaust, because the darkest clouds in Jewish history always have a silver lining, I say it's the creation of a Jewish state. I always say that the world... You know, my, my perspective, because I am a historian and a rabbi, so I, wear, I always say I wear two hats. I wear my little rabbi hat, but I wear my historian hat. And I always try to look at it from the perspective of, you know, on high down, you know, and from the bottom looking up. I always say the world historically has not been able to really deal with Jews as victors. They prefer Jews as victims. That's the standard, you know, model we've lived in pushed from country to country throughout Europe, persecuted, killed, blamed for poisoning whales and being in league with the devil. And there's almost, a, there's almost an algorithm you can come up with, how many Jews are killed versus how much sympathy Israel gets. I think it took 6 million Jews dying for the world to feel sorry enough mm. for the Jewish people, for the UN to vote. November 29th, 1947 in Flushing Meadow, that's before they moved to the east side. Uh, 33 to 13 with 10 abstentions. Thank God abstentions didn't count in the vote, otherwise it wouldn't have happened, mm. uh, to create a Jewish state. Uh, which, so, so there you had, it was the vote, you see the famous images of everyone waiting by the radios to see, will the world sanction the creation of a Jewish state? It wasn't a clear-cut thing that was going to happen. But what has happened since then, and Israel was largely perceived as the little, little, little David surrounded by the Goliath. You know, 22 states of the Arab League. 5.5 million square miles of territory. Today, it's 300 million Arabs versus Israel, 10,500 square miles of territory. Hmm. You know, less than 7 million Jews. You know, yeah. it's a little bit lopsided. That was the original thing. The, con the, the combination of sympathy for the Holocaust and Israel, like this little David against the Goliath. But what's happened with Israel's surviving and prospering, even winning major victories, and, and the Cold War influence is from, especially after 67 war, and to the present, the narrative uh, has largely, due to a lot of hard work on the part of you know, disinformation and propaganda, has changed to Israel is now, the, 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 the conflict has been microtized to Israel as the Goliath, the Palestinians are the David, and Israel is no longer legitimate. And all the sympathy that came about because of the Holocaust and the guilt that you know, was in European consciousness for either actively or not proactively doing something to save Jews or actively killing them, has worn off, hmm. and now they're kind of sick of being beaten. You know, a, I heard a, a, a kind of very cynical line: "Germany's never forgiven the Jews for the Holocaust." <laughs> they're, they're, <laughs> they're sick of feeling guilty, and if they can, and I'm not saying all Europeans are doing this, but I think a, a lot, especially on the left, and even on the hard right too, the both extremes are never good. Um, are basically, if we could turn the Jews into the Nazis, 
and the Palestinians into the Jews and like and Israel and, and the, the the lies that come out that Israeli army ha- harvests Palestinian organs and you know is committing a genocide against give me a break you got to be kidding um, you know if we can turn the Jews into the Nazis so to speak and turn and they usually they actually use swastika emblems in the anti-Israel cartoons now they turn the six lines of the Star of David into a swastika and we could turn the Palestinians into the Jews then the Jews are really no better than the Germans we don't have to feel the Nazis were we don't have to feel we don't have to feel guilty anymore and we can first ideologically undo our support for Israel and then physically undo it. And let's just get rid of this little annoying moral thorn in our side, which is kind of messing up our narrative. That's my kind of cynical take on it. But that's how the world is transformed from being pro-Israel, sympathetic and supporting the creation of a Jewish state to now U.S., Micronesia, Marshall Islands, Australia, Canada, when Stephen Harper was prime minister, for sure, you know. Mm-hmm. A few other places are staunchly pro-Israel, and the rest are standing on the sidelines or actively kind of condemning us. It's kind of yeah. scary. Very, very interesting insight. And um, so when we, when we think about all of that and, uh, and where that situation sort of lies today, uh, how huge is this recent deal between, uh, you know, Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, and Israel, brokered by, uh, you know, the great, the great uh, controversial leader of the United <laughs> States? <laughs> can we say his name? I guess we. Yeah, yeah sure, Donald Trump. Um, how huge is this, and and what does it mean for Israel right now? Well, first of all, I have to give Trump credit. I don't know what listeners think of him or not. The guy's a businessman. I'm a big believer, by the way. Nothing to do with Trump, but that, you know, businessmen should run states, cities, and countries because they're all businesses. Right. Trump understood one thing. I think he's, you know, the art of the deal. He wrote this book. I never read it, but he understood, you know, that, that there's a quote attributed to Albert Einstein, which he didn't say, but the definition of insanity is repeating the same mistake over and over, repeating the same experiment over and over again, expecting a different result. Mm-hmm. You know, the Palestinians have gotten to this mold of, is we can we can continually attack Israel, violate all of our agreements, say no to everything, and the world will restrain Israel and always give us another chance to say no and support us and pour billions of dollars into our economy and yada yada yada. And it, it's like it ain't working. This is this has been going on since forty eight. So mm-hmm. Trump says I'm going to try something completely different. And remember, like first of all, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital. Oh my God, the world's going to explode. The Middle East is going to blow. Nothing. Nothing. It was unbelievable how little happened. And then he makes this deal, you know, because the Palestinians were smart and really wanted peace. They have the best arrangement of any Arabs in the world. The neighbors of Israel. You know, let's just let's just make peace. We'll we'll have all these industrial parks and high-tech parks together with those Jewish people who are so creative and you know silicone wadi and they're so and, you know, they'll think of all the great ideas. We have cheap labor, we got the Arabs around us with all this cheap energy. The Middle East could be like China on steroids. And that's because they see Israel, you know, Arabs may not like Israel. They respect Israel democracy and they respect Israel innovation, even the ones who hate our guts. Um, so Trump says, no, let's try something different. So he, he tried his new, you know, the deal of the century thing, which didn't get off the ground. But I think it shook people up to realize we got to try a different formula. And also the Arabs have bigger fish to fry. The notion of pan-Arab unity is gone. If, I don't, this is a topic we could talk about for hours, but the Arab world may yell and scream about Israel, but trust me, Shiites and Sunnis, the Iranians are Shiites, you know, Hezbollah, Shiite, you know, these guys hate each other's guts. And there's a big power struggle going on between, you know, Sunni powers like Saudi Arabia and Egypt versus, and then you have Turkey on the side and you've got 
Iran, which is freaking countries like Saudi Arabia and the Emirates out. They're, they're really threatened by those guys. They know Israel's not going to start. Israel's never started a war with any of its neighbors. So, you know, there's, you know, that great saying in the Middle East, my enemy's enemy's my friend. A lot of this is coming out of a practical realization that we need to align ourselves with people who are really going to be on our side and have common interests. The interest is opposing radicalism and Iran. It's also out of complete burnout on the part of a lot of Arab states with the Palestinians. Like how many cent decades are you guys going to go on acting like this? Why do I have to put money into you? You're just an obstacle to us developing. And countries like the Emirates, you know, UAE is really, is Europe finally getting it right? Instead of artificially creating these countries that have no cohesion like Iraq, Sunni, Shiites, Kurds that have nothing in common and don't get along, they finally realize that the Middle East is tribal and, and, and religiously divided. And if you can create, if you look, anyone, your listeners, should, the watchers should look at a map of how these Emirates states are divided. They're like little, little fiefdoms. They're like states in America. You have a certain amount of autonomy and a certain amount of cohesive unity, but you have a lot of independence and you can keep your own area. It mm. works much better. And these guys are Bedouins. They're, they're, the UAE is one giant family. It's one, and Bedouins, mm. by the way, it's, the rest of the Arab world looks down on them, but they think they're the real true Arabs. They're extremely loyal. Their, their word is their honor. And they see a great opportunity here. So this is sort of Israel leapfrogging over its neighbors, most of which are in pathetically bad shape. Syria, right. Jordan, Egypt, Lebanon. These countries are such loser states that could be such winners if they had peace with Israel. And just going to the, Arab states, which while seemingly quite Muslim, you know, they're very, they're very religious states. They're not secular states like a lot of the other Arab states were more secular. But these guys are truly interested in having a strategic and economic relationship with Israel. And it's sort of like, you know, what Egypt did costs, cost Sadat his life for making peace with Israel in 79. Now you've got basically four countries have peace treaties. We're already on the way to being up to, you know, maybe a quarter of the Arab League is going to have peace treaties with Israel. And I think you're going to see more and more of it. So this is really a game changer. And I think as the, will it last? I don't know. But I think as the bigger issues, the geopolitical realities, the economic and strategic challenges, these countries wake up to it. Uh, they're going to recognize that there's a lot to be gained by having a relationship with Israel and very little to be lost by doing that. So I think it's huge. And unlike the peace with um, Egypt, and with um, Jordan, which is a cold piece. There's no cultural exchange. They hate our guts, especially Jordanians. Really, they're the same people as the Palestinians because these are all the same Arabs. Mm -hmm. They just have random you know, names they took upon themselves based on what they artificially created borders like Palestinians, Jordanians. There's no difference. The same people. These are not ancient peoples. Jordan is not an ancient country. Um, that uh, that, that we're going to see now that the, the other, these other states that are further away from us that aren't so traditionally hostile that we're never at war with us. We're just, we're not making a peace treaty with, you know, you know, in our Emirates or Bahrain, we're make, we're normalizing relations. Mm -hmm. So, and unlike those countries like Jordan and Egypt, where it was always nasty to go there, they really want us there. All the hotels have to have kosher food. I think it's going to be, well, remember this conversation. I'm pretty sure when things normalize because of COVID-19, that, that UAE is going to be the hottest tourist destination for Israelis. I can promise you. Okay, Every Israeli is going to want to go there. Yeah. yeah so desperate watch. to have that relationship. And they're going to be so happy to go somewhere. People, you like, like Israelis used to go to Turkey before Erdogan. It was the number one tourist destination. 
Yeah. We, we love, we do anything for peace. We love anyone who wants to be nice to us. We'll give you our money. We'll give you our technology. <laughs> and I just saw the first uh, kosher restaurant opened in, uh, in Dubai, in the tallest building in the world. Did I see that? I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah I heard that also. Yeah. It was just unbelievable. Yeah, you'll, we'll have to go check it out. Maybe they have bungee cord jumping after the meal. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know if that will help digest or the opposite. But anyway, uh, that's, uh, that's very interesting. So I, I love to hear your take uh, on what's happening. Um, in, in your opinion, will this, uh, will this continue? Will, will other Arab states follow? Uh, I think so. There'll be more, uh, not necessarily Arab, but Muslim states, because okay. there's 22 states of the Arab League, and there's, I think, 56 countries that have Islam, like these African, many of the Af states in North Africa. Mm -hmm. um, and it has a lot to do, I think a lot will depend on, first of all, big thing is U.S. elections. I see Trump is really on the war path, trying to do deals, you know, you know, with peace treaties with Israel. He's putting a lot of pressure and offering a lot of stuff. I don't know if, if, if Biden gets reelected, I have a feeling that will not continue that way. Uh, I think a lot depends on which Arab states are willing to take the leap before there's an Israel-Palestinian agreement. But hmm. in my opinion, if the Arabs really cared about the Palestinians, they would tell them to grow up because the number one thing that will trigger peace uh, you know, Henry, Tony Blair just said this. It was fascinating. He's the former prime minister, of this, labor prime minister of England, who was in charge of like the Middle East peace negotiator for the European Union. He said, we got it all wrong. It's amazing. He's exactly validating what Trump is doing. He's saying the way to get peace with the Palestinians is for Israel, because when you feel you have an en enemy within you who's attacking you and enemies without, mm -hmm. you're only willing to risk stuff when you feel secure. And when you feel so, if you change the whole paradigm, that it's not like it, within, without, we break this kind of connection of the Arab world's rejection of Israel with the Palestinian issue, and the Palestinians realize, hey, we're losing our support. We can't just keep acting like petulant, spoiled terrorist children. Uh, Israel's doing great. You know, we better just grab what we can while we can before we end up totally isolated and, and, and Qatar stops giving us money, which is basically keeping them going in Gaza. Um, you know, so that could be if the Arabs are really smart and really, they don't really care about the Palestinians, that's clear to me, but if I think they really wanted to push the peace process forward, the more Arab states truly normalize relations with Israel, I think the quicker you would actually see a normalization, a normalization of a relationship with uh, Palestinians, not necessarily the leadership they have now. Mahmoud Abbas is in the 15th year of his four-year term. These are not democracies. <laughs> they're not stable countries. No. They're not industrialized. Hamas is even worse. But I think the average pal the, the talk on the street that I know of is that the, the, the many of the Palestinians, you know, Abbas is threatening to to end the Palestinian Authority and give it all back to Israel to be the occupying power. Apparently, a lot of the Palestinians are, please, can we have Israel back? <laughs> you know? yeah. Because Palestinian Authority and Hamas, especially the is, is so corrupt, and so yeah. not doing anything to make their people any better lives, like Gaza. Sharon gave them Gaza. What did they do? They threw the Palestinians out and they've turned it into a terrorist launching site. There could be all of these technology parks. There could be such a great symbiotic relationship between the Arab population of Gaza and the communities around there. It would be, it would be paradise, beautiful beaches, hotels, just got to be normal. Just yeah. got to be normal. Yeah. Yeah. I, I came to sort of my realization of the depth of the corruption in, uh, in the Palestinian state when, when I uh, was visiting Mount Gerizim uh, near Nablus, and uh, 
my friend, my guide who was, was with me pointed to a, a huge building and uh, he said, what do you think that is? And I, I mean, it, it was so massive. I thought it was like a, some sort of temple or, or, you know, great, great monument uh, of history. He said, no, that, that was Arafat's house. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I, you know, I'm, I'm with my camera, I'm zooming in on this place and it's like, it's unbelievably massive. And I'm thinking, okay, so where does the aid money go? Um, and that's, that's the thing, right? He's a multi-billionaire, as is Abbas, by the way. The yeah. Palestinian interesting factoid, and I don't know if it's still true, but it was, that the UN has two, one body for all refugee issues in the world, which deals with tens of millions of people. Right. And the Palestinians are the only people in the world who have their own, it's called UNRWA. Yep. It's existed since 48, to deal just with them, and UNRWA's budget exceeded the budget of all refugee issues in the world combined. They've addicted these people to welfare, not just in Israel, not just in these camps, but also in the surrounding Arab states. And we know that welfare states don't work. You see in America the danger of doing that. You see it anywhere in the world. You addict people to giving them free stuff and allow them to get away with literally murder while not holding them accountable for anything and making mm-hmm. them feel they're entitled to everything. And they end up being the biggest losers and the people in there. And they are. The, they are. They've never, the great line that said, Yasser Arafat never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, one last question, then I'm going to let you go because I know you got other stuff to do. But uh, what has this done internally in, in the land of Israel, this peace deal? Has it had a negative impact in terms of uh, the Palestinians and, and their relationship with Israel, their aggression against Israel? Has it kind of ramped things up? What's going on? Well, their anger is not at Israel. I mean, they're always angry at Israel. There's a, right. there's a, there's a constant maintenance level of, of rage at Israel, burning flags and stuff and stepping on pictures of Bibi and whatever. Their rage is directed at, at you know, the, the leaders of, you know, countries like the United Arab Emirates. You mm. traitors, you sold us out. You didn't maintain. the. But as you see, again, proving yet again, they didn't explode in another intifada violence. You know, one of the, the only positive side of COVID-19 is, you know, there's very, little, there's very little going on here in terms of things are very quiet. Mm. You, know, Good. you know, in terms of, there's always a lot more going on. Even when I'm living here, I know what's going on. But I, all my kids did the army and they would tell me all these things. And I said, that didn't make the news. That didn't make the news. That didn't make the news. I mean, Israel is a country that lives in a constant state of like, you know, a state of emergency, preventing terrorism on a level that no one in the Western world, not in Canada, certainly doesn't appreciate or America. Um, so uh, on the ground, you don't see, you don't feel any different. You don't feel any more tension. None of that here. Nothing's exploded. But I think it's a big wake up call for the Arab world that hopefully bottom up, maybe they'll recognize that this is not working. We got to change our leadership. That's what we live in hope. That's, 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 that's the only possible good outcome I could see from their end is, is, is uh, demanding change and wanting to get a piece of the pie before it's all sliced up and given to everyone else. Okay. Great. Well, Ken, thanks so much for uh, your time today. Appreciate Pleasure. you uh, taking me. some time to chat with me. And uh, I hope that uh, soon we can actually have dinner together uh, somewhere along Jaffa Street or, or on the Shuk. One of the things I'm, I'm saddest about is that uh, I'm fairly certain this this COVID-19 uh, will change the landscape of some of my favorite restaurants in Jerusalem. Uh, I know here in North America, you know, lots of, lots of restaurants, some, some very successful ones are going out of business because of, because of what's been happening. And so uh, hopefully we'll God still be able to get together for dinner. I hope so soon. And in our days, as we say, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, Ken. Thanks so much. And thanks, uh, thanks for having me. Take care. Stay, stay right. sane and healthy in this crazy world. Yes, we'll do. You also. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ken Spiro today. And uh, Ken has just such a wealth of information that uh, he is able to share with us. He has learned and knows so much and some great insight that he shared today about these peace accords and about whether or not peace is going to be lasting in the region. We want to hope and believe that uh, that can be the case. And uh, I encourage you to check out some of Ken's material on his website. Remember, he is Jewish. He is a, a religious Jew. Uh, we are Christian believers. Many uh, th of those of you who listen would be Christians, but uh, it's great to get the Jewish perspective and to, uh, to hear Ken's insight. I think it's very, very helpful to us. I want to remind you that we are a ministry, a ministry that is uh, coming alongside and praying for and helping many ministries in Israel who are provide, providing practical and humanitarian aid there in the land of Israel. We want to be able to continue to assist them. And if you would like to help us do that, then uh, you can go to our website, firstcenturyfoundations.com and uh, forward slash donate so that uh, you can help us with a uh, financial gift. We certainly appreciate your prayers as well. And uh, just want to say again, thank you for listening. God bless you. And remember, as Christians, we stand with Israel. <laughs>